0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Morning, everybody. How are we today? Staying cool out there, the answer is no, deal with it. We live in Texas, you know? Uh, welcome, my name is Charlie. Hey, before we kick into the sermon, let me talk about something that's gonna happen in about a month. So if you're new to CBC or maybe you just don't pay attention, both those are fine. We have a, a rhythm to our teaching calendar. So in the summer, I like to be in Old Testament texts. In the fall, I pick an epistle or a couple chapters. Christmas, we talk about Christmas things. I'm still trying to get out of that, but I can't culturally. Um, In the spring, if you haven't noticed, we've been in the Gospels the last five-ish years, four-ish years and change. We've been in Matthew, and we just pick up where we left off, and we started Matthew 5, and four years later, we're in Matthew, like, five and a half. So it's been a really good series. And uh, in the fall and spring, at the beginning of the fall and at the end of the spring after Easter, we like to do topical series just to kind of speak into where we're at as a people and a culture. And so in about a month, August 10th, 14th-ish, we're going to kick off a three or four week series on um, a topic called just what does the Bible say about? So what I want from you guys, we're sending emails out too, is send us any questions you might have about what we need to speak into, about what the Bible says about it in our culture. Because what I don't want to do is be the kind of church that always teaches theology, but doesn't teach about how theology tells us how to live the right way out in our world. It's really important. And so if you want to, we've got a, a, a website, a, a email address, questions at crossroadsbible.org. There is not a question that's too stupid, I promise, that's going to go straight to me. I will only make fun of you in my mind, okay? Um, send in your questions. I can't wait to pick a couple that really speak to us. We're probably going to get a lot if we don't touch yours. That's okay. Um, I'll group into categories and we'll go, but I'm excited. Cool? Before we get into our text this morning, we spend some time centering ourselves around what we know to be true. That's why we're here today. We come to church on Sundays, not to check a box or make God love us. We come because this is the space that tells us what's worthy of worship in a world that wants us to worship it. This is the space that challenges the criticalness of culture and asks us to join the conversation of what God is doing. This is the space where we can know that God is near and he's speaking to us. And so before we move into the text, we say this phrase, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We're going to pray. That this morning you might be convicted by the scriptures in a beautiful and holy way. That God might speak to your spirit and we might leave knowing more why God is the only thing worthy of our worship. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful for this morning that we can come here and regardless of how hot it is outside or what's going on in our world or um, the world around us, that you are still worthy of our worship today that you are the centering point for the rest of our week, not in this space. This morning, might we see your goodness and beauty and align ourselves with that. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning as we open the text. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to say a, a quick prayer to yourself and ask the Holy Spirit this morning who's near to speak to your spirit. i ask you to pray for me, that God might use my preparation and my study to rightly paint a picture of what he intends in the command we're gonna talk about today. He is for the goodness of life in the people of God. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. So about two and a half weeks ago, something happened to me. I got my first hole-in-one of my life, right? That's right. And all right, four people are excited. Um, And and I know what you're thinking. You're looking at me and you're feeling the natural athleticism that is exuding off of me and you're thinking, how could it only be number one? I don't know. Life's not fair. Um, Really, I've been trying for two and a half weeks to find a place to work that in. So my job is done. Let's go home. No, no, no. So I, one thing I, I think about golf is if you watch it on TV or maybe you've never played it, it seems relatively simple. Baseball's hard. People say the hardest thing in sports, any sport, is to hit a baseball. And you can look into the science behind it, but roughly speaking, a hitter trying to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball that is moving has about two hundredths of a second to decide if he's going to swing and where he's going to swing. Very difficult. Very difficult. In golf, you tee a ball that doesn't move above the ground, and it's white so you can see it, and you have a blade, and you just swing. It seems really, really easy, but it's not. If you've ever played it, you probably have been frustrated by, how does it seem so simple, yet I'm so, so bad at it at the same time, you know? We're in a series on the Ten Commandments, and today's commandment is kind of the same. It seems really simple. It's, hey, let's not murder people. I'm willing to bet if I asked to raise your hand, and you don't have to, if I said how many people in this room have murdered somebody, I don't think a hand would go up, and I'm pretty excited about that, everybody. Go team Jesus today, you know? You're probably also thinking, this is going to be great, this is simple and easy, we're going to get out early, just tap the brakes there. My name's Charlie. Uh, we're going to dive into the scripture on what it means not to murder, because here, here's what I, I think, I think it's a fairly seemingly simple command. it's the shortest of all the Ten Commandments, it's two words in the Hebrew. But, but I wonder what happens if we look behind the idea of simply don't murder and see the complexity behind the simple command. I wonder if there's more for us to glean about the person and nature and character of God as followers of God in our world. I wonder if there's more for us to see behind the commandment than simply don't murder somebody you don't like. And, and that's today. So as we get into it, let's start by defining some terms. I, I grew up, Um, And when I memorized the Ten Commandments, I memorized the thou shalt version. I don't know where you guys land in this thing, but KGV was kind of what was uh, indwelled in me growing up with the Ten Commandments. So it actually didn't say don't murder. My version was thou shalt not kill, right? And then pretty much in the recent 30, 40, 50 year periods, the the scripture as we've translated has gotten away from that word kill because basically it's just not specific enough. So if your Bible still says kill, let me tell you why it should say murder. There's about eight different words in the Hebrew for kill and they all mean certain things. This word says murder because it's a more specific or accurate representation of what the author is trying to say. So before we move on past what it means for us, let's define terms. In the Old Testament Pentateuch, in the law giving section, it says don't murder in this command, but it also allows for certain types of killing that are excluded from this command. Let me, let me run a few down for you. Exodus 22, 2. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So what this command doesn't, um, what doesn't fall under this command is self-defense. It's not what this word means. In the other parts of the Old Testament, it actually says you can defend yourself and all the gun-toting Texans said, that's right. You know, God is good. <laughs> I'm scared by those of you laughing a little bit right now. No, no, but, but the Bible, the Old Testament, when it comes to Israel, and, and all I'm doing here, I'm not making any political statements. I'm, I'm getting context from the scriptures to talk about what this word means. And so it means that you shouldn't murder people, but it excludes self-defense. But I, I think what's really important about that phrase in Exodus 22 is not the first part, but the second part. It says the defender is not guilty of bloodshed, but... If you click on that slide again, it'll come up. There it is. Uh, one more time. Oh, maybe it's not working. Okay, it's not working. I'm going to read it for you. Um, It says, the guilt is not guilty of bloodshed, but if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. What's really interesting in that text is it seemingly says, if you kill someone on your property at night, you're allowed to do so. If it's in the daytime, you're not. You know why? Because there's other options outside of killing. You can see what's going on. You can call a friend for help. You can find another way. What this command says is, yeah, we're going to allow self-defense, but we're never going to celebrate death. It's always a last option, not a first the gun-toting Texans said, ugh, <laughs> you know? So, so the Bible says, hey, don't murder. But part of that is not simply self-defense. Uh, another part, it says, and we'll just go to Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds human blood by humans, uh, their blood will be shed. God has made mankind. It, it seemingly um, doesn't include capital punishment either. Again, this is not a political statement. I think, I know friends that follow Jesus that are for and against this issue. I definitely have a stance. I'm not gonna share from the stage. But, but in the Old Testament, when they read this, it didn't include self-defense and it didn't include capital punishment. Both those were allowable. If you killed somebody, in the Hebrew lifestyle, your life was then given for the person that you killed. Uh, and then lastly, uh, war. Simply because we know there are wars in the Bible that God calls people into. And so we see three different conditions that don't meet the criteria of what the commandment says in terms of murdering people. Self-defense, we see uh, capital punishment, and we see war. And again, you can read on war in the scriptures, but it was never something sought after, especially in the Old Testament, God used Israel to show people and take out divine judgments on nations that were very, 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 very wicked. And we need to be very careful on whether to translate that theology into the New Testament and into right here and right now, another topic for another day. But when God says, in the Ten Commandments, do not murder, we have to understand what he's talking about. And it doesn't mean self-defense, and it, and it necessarily doesn't mean wars, and it doesn't mean capital punishment, but it does mean there's a couple kinds of killing that are off limits for followers of Jesus, for, for uh, the Old Testament Hebrew people. If you look at uh, Numbers uh, Deuteronomy 22.8, in Deuteronomy 22.8 it says, if you build a new house... You must construct a guardrail around your roof to avoid being culpable in the event someone should fall from it. So, at night in the ancient Near East, even in the first century, people would hang out on the roofs of their houses because it was cool and there was a breeze. And so, what the scriptures say is if you don't fight for life in such a way that you prevent the innocent people from accidentally dying, you're culpable of murder. So along with the fact that if you just kill somebody straight out, you're culpable of murder. If you don't prohibit people from accidentally killing themselves when you can, that you're culpable. There's another uh, verse in the Old Testament that people quote often because it says, if your ox gores another person, then you kill the ox. If it happens multiple times, then you will then die. It's saying simply if we define murder in this text, the law prohibits killing or causing to be killed by direct action of inaction or any legally innocent person. Say it again, the law prohibits the killing or causing to be killed by direct action or inaction any legally innocent person. So define the term first, we're gonna define when it says do not murder in the 10 commandments as either you directly killing somebody that's innocent or you could have stopped somebody that's innocent dying and you didn't. That breaks this command. That's the what, let's get into the why. So as it talks about it in the Old Testament, it talks about why we're not allowed to kill people. And you're going to say, I know, but we're going to walk through this because it's important. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I myself am he, God's talking here. There's no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Jesus, when he's walking and uh, healing in John chapter 5, heals somebody on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees get very mad at this, and they say, only God can work on the Sabbath, because God brings life and God takes life, and only God can do that, and it's my, one of my favorite passages of Jesus, because they go to Jesus and they say, you worked on the Sabbath, only God can work on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, that's right. <laughs> And he's implying there that he, like God, can work on the Sabbath because God's allowed to take and give life. And here's one of the bigger principles behind the command of not murdering is we don't get to choose when life starts and when life ends because we are not sovereign over life. Fundamentally, it's not yours to give, and so it's not yours to take away. That stealing, will get there in a couple weeks. We don't get to kill because God is the only giver of life and God can be the only taker of life. And that has implications for how we live here and now. I was in Amsterdam a few years ago, and as I was there, I remember some of the conversations in the country, in Amsterdam, um, it's legal, and it's legal some places in the country too, to have something called death with dignity. It's if you choose that that life isn't worth living and you meet some conditions and criteria, you can take some pills to slowly end your life. And I remember why I thought about it was when I was there, I think there was a man that was 38 or 40 that was relatively young and he asked the question, he said, well, I want my life to end now. I've done all that I want to do, can I just take the pills? In the Northwest, in the States in 2015, there was kind of a national debate that went on around two people. There's a woman named Brittany Menard and uh, Kara Tippett, I believe. And they both were youngish and they both had terminal stage four cancer and one of them decided that she wanted to die with dignity and take the pills and Kara Tippett was his Christian and said, don't do that. Let me tell you why. There's a grace and there's a beauty in dying and only God is rightful to take life because only God can give life. I love what one theologian says, a person may not be killed for this reason that he is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praise. And therefore, anybody who kills another person thereby robs God. Fundamentally, we don't kill, not because it's bad or not because simply we think it's something that doesn't help our society flourish. We don't kill because it's a recognition that only God, only God is sovereign over life. Only God can give life and only God can take it away we talk about the series being the joy of boundaries. What, what this does is it reminds us of who we are in life, who God is. I think the biggest sin in the scriptures and the biggest influence and temptation for us is to believe that we're more God-like than we actually are. We buy into the lie that either we can control more or do more or be more like God than we actually are. That's Adam and Eve's story in Genesis 3. And what these commands do is they remind us first and foremost with every single one that we are not God, only God is God. And so he says, don't kill because God is the only one that has the sovereignty over life and death. It's a picture of who he is in relation to us. Also, there's this idea in the scriptures called the Imago Dei. You guys know what that means? There's a a funny story. You think it's funny. I think it's kind of funny. It's in Mark chapter 12. It's in all the synoptics. And Jesus gets asked about taxes. And you're thinking, Charlie, we're talking about death. Why'd you bring up taxes? Well, because, right? Sorry, dad joke, had to make it. Um, so so in, the, in the scriptures, the Pharisees come and they say, hey, this money, should we give it to God or should we give it to Caesar? And you know the verse, Jesus looks at the coin and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God's what is God's. I think what's fascinating about that verse is not what he said, but what he didn't say. He's implying that you're going to give this to Caesar because his image is stamped right on it, but then he looks at people and says, give to God what is God's, implying that God's image divinely is stamped on all of us. I think it's conviction to those people. Sure, give the money to Caesar. What is your life if it's not being given to the one that you created? You were created to carry the image of? We get that from Genesis 1. God created mankind in His image. In the image he created them, male and female, he created them. It's this idea that that we probably know as followers of Jesus, but I don't think we focus on enough, that we are the only part of creation that carries forward the image of the God that created everything around us, that we are different than dogs and cats and ponies, that we were meant to live out the goodness of God so the rest of creation could see it. You and I are different. I fundamentally believe that the biggest doctrinal uh, change that we could make, the, the biggest influence that we could have in our world is if we believed and studied the doctrine of Imago Dei. It changes how we think of ourselves and how we think of everything around us, that we are the image bearers of God who created in the first place. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, These are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. I think no doctrine would more radically transform our world than if people took seriously, practiced, and promoted the doctrine of Imago Dei. So what's really interesting about this command is that it's really simple. It's two words. It's don't murder. What's interesting about that in the context of the ancient Near East is in all the cultures around them had semi-sort of the same commands, but it didn't apply to everybody. If you look at different uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures in Mesopotamia and around them, uh, you always had these commands about not killing, but it was only someone that was equal or greater than you. So basically, you could kill a slave and just pay a fine. You could kill a kid and pay a fine. You you know, people that didn't contribute to society like you contributed to society and it would be okay because what they had was this idea that you were intrinsically worth what you produced or created, that your value was derived by who you were and what you did, not who you were made in the image of. I think what the Imago Dei does is it gives divine dignity to everybody regardless of age or stage or contribution. What it does is it reorders the value we put on people because not of what they do, do, but because of who Jesus and who God is and how he created us. And what that does, at the end of the day, what that does is if it's not for the Imago Dei, the the sadness of death is is felt by the impact of the person that died and not the Imago Dei that, that we were created to carry forward in creation. Death is sad because somebody that was supposed to look like God doesn't exist anymore in this place. Imago Dei gives us divine dignity as simply people and that's why as followers of Jesus we're for life in all its forms there's a theological term called uh, apophatic and and cataphatic and basically what that means is cataphatic says that I'm going to define God by positive words he is good he is powerful he is strong apophatic means I'm going to define God through negation right he is not evil see the difference and for years and years, normally we fall on the cataphatic side of things, meaning that God is good, God is gracious, God is kind, God is strong, God is merciful. But what that does sometimes is it limits our understanding of, of, of that principle of God based on how we understand goodness. A great example is God is Father. If you have a bad father, your understanding of God as Father is limited by your experience because you don't fully understand what Father is or goodness is or mercy is or grace is because it comes through the lens of your experience apophatic theology would say that we just simply say that God is not evil. And what that means is anything outside of that God is. My daughter lately has really been big on saying our last name. Like we were at dinner the other night and she looked at me and she said, Dad, I said, what's up? She said, we are right hours. And I said, yes, we are. She said, did you know that? I said, I happen to. Yeah. She said, we are. Dad, I'm a riding hour. Yeah, cataphatic statement. Like this is what I am. Now, now, Apathetic would be here saying, Dad, we are not Zapatas, right? <laughs> Which is true. But what that means is that we can be anything else, right? What this text does is it says, God is not murder. What it means is he is for anything not murder. It broadens the definition of what God is for. He is for life in all of its forms. And so what this fundamentally means as we talk about this commandment and its relationship to how it changes our relationship with God, is it shows us that God is for all life and we should be too. We should be for all life. And Christians know that. It's one of my favorite notes about the church, the early church. You know, in the Roman culture, when the church started, uh, if you had a child, the father of the family decided whether to keep the child. And so sometimes if the kid had a birth defect or sometimes it was a girl or just didn't want it, it was too many kids, uh, he would just leave the kid out on the doorstep. It would be taken as a slave by someone that walked by or just left to the conditions to die. Christians were known because they went from door to door and picked up kids that nobody wanted. Christians are so pro-life in all its forms. Nationally, we've had talks about abortion and the implications of that. In the Christian church has come out and said, we are for life. And what that means is it doesn't just stop with those people that aren't yet born. It it begins and continues with those that are already here, with kids that need homes, with mothers that are hurting. We are for life in all its forms. One of my favorite writers this last week said, our work as a church is just beginning because people are hurting. That's why abortion exists in the first place. And so we as a church, we as a church need to step into the place where people are hurting and before life, all of it, for kids and moms and and, and older people, and we need to be for all forms of life. That's why this summer, as we serve, we're going to feed some homeless people in in a week and we're going to make some bikes for foster kids and we're going to be for life in all its forms. That's why the church is against euthanasia and, and against suicide. You know, suicide is the second leading cause of death for teens between 14 and 19 years old now. That means that outside of accidental death, suicide is the biggest reason why teenagers die. I go back to saying, man, if, 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 we had a well-developed doctrine of Imago Dei, it would stop some of these things. That you know why we're for your life? Because you represent God. It's a simple and beautiful and powerful statement. On your good days and on your bad days, God formed you and made you. and said you are different and special and unique and loved. Is there work to do sometimes? Sure. But we begin the conversation of life with the idea that life, all life is worth celebrating in all forms and all facets. But, but there's more to just the command than celebrate all life because it doesn't just change this command how we see our relationship with God and how we see what we're for because what God is for. This command naturally has implications into how we see other people. I think the the doctrine of Imago Dei would do more to transform our world than any other doctrine because we're such a divided people. I don't know if the first thing we see when we look at people that agree and disagree with us is the image of God in that person. So, It's been a couple weeks since I've done a soccer story. Um, I just signed up to coach again in the fall, and I'm thinking, why? Um, But I remember it. So, you know, coaching my daughter this year, and I remember because my daughter is my daughter, and she's my image, and I care for her, and I love her. I remember when she would, like, maybe get aggressive one or two times and knock a kid over. I'm like, that kid just got right in her way. How dare that child? But if anybody else's kid knocked my kid over, we were calling the cops, everybody. Salt! Did we see it? Right there, you know? How much would it change how we treat others we agree with or disagree with if we saw them first through the lens of the image bearers of God who created them? I like what Calvin says about it. He says, as he talks about image bearers, we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them, an image which covering and obliterating their faults, an image which by its beauty and dignity should allure us to love and embrace them. The command not to murder is it's not necessarily just a command not to commit violence on somebody else. What it means is that God is for life. What it means is that we see the Imago Dei in those around us. What it, what it means is that God is a sovereign one in charge of giving and taking life. And we, like God, are supposed to be for life in all of its forms. And it would be enough if it was just that. It would be enough if it was just that. But Jesus actually expands our understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus expands our understanding of the law. It's why he says to people, I didn't come to break the law. I came to fulfill it and show you its full meaning. So Jesus speaks to this in Matthew five twenty one. He says, you've heard it said to the older generation, meaning the law given to Moses, do not murder. And whomever murders will be subjugated to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. There's a uh, a writer named David Paulson. He's a teacher. He's a counselor for 30 years. He's got his MDiv and his PhD. He wrote a book called "Good and Angry: Redeeming Anger, Irritation, and Complaining and Bitterness." And his third chapter is titled "Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger?" And you open the chapter, and the chapter just says "Yes." And then chapter four. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> so I love the chapter that says, "Do you have this thing, man? Do I maybe sort of yes and done? End of conversation, right?" So, so Jesus pushes the idea of life further than simply did you hurt somebody. He says in this text, "If you're angry with a brother, you're subject you're subjected to judgment." He goes on to say, "Whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council, and whoever says fool will be sent to a fiery hell." It's not literal, but what he's saying is you're breaking the commandment. You're breaking what God is for. That word fool there is kind of where we get the word moron. It's if you're speaking to people in a way that's demeaning. In addition, Jesus ranks humiliation and dehumanization along with the sin of murder. He ties those two things together. What we see is the biblical concept of murder goes beyond a physical action. It's, an, it's any attempt to destroy the image of God in another person. Any attempt. It's any attempt that we might have, whether it's in deed or whether it's in word or here's the, the kicker, whether it's in thought to tear down the image of God and someone around us. Let me ask again, do we have any murderers in the building? <laughs> I think through how I speak to people. I think through, I'm a very road ragey driver, you know? Um, lived in Dallas, moved to the suburbs where we drive five to seven miles an hour slower because it's a Tuesday. And we were driving a few weeks ago And my daughter who I drive with a lot sits in the back and there's a green light and this person didn't go and she starts yelling at the driver in front of me. She said, what are you doing? It's what I say to people. (laughs) And I thought, parent of the year, everybody. We don't even know it, but we demean the image of God and those around us. And the Bible says that's like murdering. Jeff Bezos gave a commencement address at Yale University in 2016. 16, I think, maybe it's 18. But I'm going to read some of the text because as I was thinking through what this meant for me, this came back up. And in a world that likes to be critical and likes to be clever over being kind, I think, it's, uh, I think it just hits home. He says, on one particular trip with his grandparents, he was 10 years old. I was rolling around in a big bench seat in, my back, in the back of the car. My grandfather was driving, and my grandmother had the passenger seat. She smoked throughout these trips, and I hated the smell. At that age, I'd take any excuse to make any estimates or do minor math. I'd calculate our gas mileage, figure out useless statistics on things like grocery spending. I'd been hearing an ad campaign about smoking, and I, can remember, I can't remember the details, but basically the ad said, every puff of a cigarette takes some number of minutes off your life. I think it might have been two minutes per puff, he says. He continues, he says, any rate... I decided to do the math for my grandmother. I estimated the number of cigarettes per day, I estimated the number of puffs per cigarette, and so on, and when I was satisfied that i had come up with a reasonable number, I poked my head in the front of the car, tapped my grandfather on the shoulder and my grandmother, and proudly proclaimed, at two minutes per puff, you've taken nine years off your life. I have a very vivid memory of what happened next. <laughs> and it was not what you expected. He said, I expected to be applauded for my cleverness and my math skills. Jeff, you're so smart. Uh, you've made some tricky estimates. You figured out the number of minutes of years and done some division, but that's not what happened. Instead, my grandmother burst into tears. He said, I sat in the back seat and I didn't know what to do while my grandmother was crying. My grandfather, who'd been driving in silence, pulled over the car at the shoulder of the highway. He got out of the car and came around and opened my door in silence. And he waited for me to follow. Was I in trouble? My grandfather was a highly intelligent, quiet man. He'd never said a harsh word to me, and maybe this was the first time. Or maybe he would ask that I get back in the car and apologize to my grandmother. I had no experience in this realm with my grandparents and no way to gauge what the consequences might be. We stopped beside the trailer. My grandfather looked at me, and after a bit of silence, he gently and calmly said, Jeff, one day you'll realize that it's harder to be kind than clever. We live in a society we might not kill a bunch of people, but man, we use our words to be clever over kind, to tear down the image of God and others because it makes us feel better. When the Bible says don't murder, it's way more than a physical act, it's anything we do to demean the Imago Dei and those around us, and that hits home. That, That convicts me who uses words, that convicts my intelligence, that convicts my cleverness, because how often throughout all the days do I tear down the image of God in others because I'm impatient, because I'm angry, because they don't look like me or value things I value, because they're not what I want or expect of them. Pope John Paul II has this quote about this commandment. He says, the sixth commandment is not merely a prohibition of killing, but a call to an attentive love which protects and promotes the life of one's neighbor. For thousands of years, as rabbis has taught this commandment, you know what passage they teach with it? They teach the passage of the Good Samaritan. They say a violation of the Sixth Commandment is seen in the Good Samaritan. You're thinking, well, nobody killed anybody. And you're thinking, oh, it's the robbers that beat up the man. But when they teach this passage, they don't talk about the robbers. They don't talk about the Samaritan. What they talk about are the three people who walked alongside of the road and didn't do anything. And they teach those men violated the Sixth Commandment to not murder because they could have done something to make the life of this person flourish, and they chose not to. They demeaned the image of God in another. I love what Martin Luther says. He says the sixth commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good for his neighbor, or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could have clothed him, if you've let him freeze to death, if you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, then you let him starve. If you see anyone condemned to death in peril and do not save them, although you know ways and you have means to do so, you have killed him. It, is, uh, it will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld uh, your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Do not murder isn't about the right to take life. It's about the responsibility to give life and to fight for the flourishing of others. Do not murder is about more than simply an action of anger against someone else. It's how we fight for the flourishing and the goodness of others, not because they've earned it or deserved it, not because they're like us, but because they're different than us, simply because people are image bearers of God and that is worth fighting for. That is worth standing up for. That is worth saying God is good and worthy of worship because he treats you and loves you like this. There is no doctrine that would radically transform our world than if we fully understood, practiced, and lived out "Imago Dei in our world. Do not murder. Because here's what we have going to kind of come to grips with. This law, it changes how we see God, it, it changes our relationship with others around us, the ones that we love and the ones that we can't stand. But then also, I, I think this one, this one law absolutely is one of the most needed that we see in our world. Man, man, we live in a very, very angry world. You know that? Pope John Paul again talks about it and he says that we live in a culture of death I can give you stats, and I can give you uh, studies that have looked up this week, but largely they say that the average kid, by the time he gets out of, I think it's the eighth grade, has probably seen somewhere around 8,000 deaths on TV and 100,000 acts of violence. We live in an interesting culture that we try to fight the implications of death all the time. You go to the grocery store, and you buy a chicken breast, and the chicken is smiling above the display of the dead chickens. That's not real life, everybody. We do what we can to divorce death from our cultural narrative because it makes us uncomfortable. But at the same time, we celebrate it in so many media forms. I am not saying stop watching Thor. That is not what I mean here. It's a nuanced conversation. What I mean is I think we need to be aware that we are surrounded culturally by anger and brutality and death that flies, against, that flies against God's command not to kill, that flies against a world in which we operate about, uh, among uh, God-image bearers. A couple studies um, that have been done throughout the years say that they show that violent video games increase aggression in males and females of all ages, regardless of where they live. And there isn't a complete consensus in the scientific field, but a couple studies that, that, that I referenced this week Show that more than 90% of pediatricians and two-thirds of media researchers agreed that violent video games increase aggression in all kids. It says, additionally, several cross-sectional and longitudinal studies have found that while exposure to violent media isn't the cause of extremely violent behavior, they do increase the risk of such behavior. We are an angry culture. You can look at studies on how, do you guys know road rage is on the rise? I think I just admitted that I'm guilty of it. That was not well thought out. But road rage is on the rise across the country. Look what happens on flights in the last year. Man, it's like the grace that we used to afford people is going away farther and farther and farther. Do you know why? Because we don't see them as image bearers of God. but problems for us. It's a very self-centric way to live. When, when God says, God says don't murder, it's so much more than just killing somebody. It's killing the image of God that God gave them that you shouldn't take away. Do not murder is not about the right to take life. It's a responsibility to give life and to fight for the flourishing of others in all its forms. (laughs) So this commandment goes from something that I thought is just so easy. Like, we're all good. We come in today, celebrate our goodness, and walk away as, you know, good Jesus followers. But it's kind of like golf, you know? You get into it, and you don't think it's complicated, and then you realize, well, this one's real difficult to do. So as, as we think about it, I think we have to ask the question, how are we fighting for those around us? How are we fighting for life in our day-to-day and how we talk to people? This week, man, think through, how do you speak to people around you? How do you speak to people you love? How do you speak to people you don't? And being mean is not just being mean. It's literally, Jesus says, it's literally akin to murdering people because you are ripping away the image of God and the people of God that God gave them to carry out and carry forward in the world. How do you speak to people? How do you treat people? I think this command is so much to teach us about how we interact with those around us so that people might see the goodness and glory of God. And then when we do that, we fulfill our duty to live out the image of God in the world around us. It's a convicting commandment. I think my favorite place to see this is Jesus. So Jesus went to the cross, and he's sitting on the cross, standing on the cross, and he's dying. They did some brutal things to him, you know? He's standing on the cross, and he's dying, and in the middle of this, literally, 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 in the middle of his death, not by his hand, Jesus, his father, forgive these people, they don't know what they are do. In the middle of his death, he fights for the life of those around him. Can you imagine that? That's why when, he, when the death narrative is over, these Roman... Centurions said, This man surely, surely has to be the son of God. Because people don't act like that. I think there's no greater command that could shape the world around us than if we treated people like they're image bearers of God. Do not murder. It's a beautiful depiction of how we're supposed to fight for life for those around us, even if the world's trying to kill us. Because God is for life. Might we be people that are as well? Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you value life. I'm thankful that you've given us the charge to love what you've created as much as you did. I'm thankful that we get the responsibility and the privilege and the honor of bearing your image to the world around us. My prayer after that thankfulness that we do it better. Holy Spirit, convict us where we don't do that well. Convict us where we tear down the image of God and other people. And help us to live in a way that reflects your passionate and genuine love for the people that you've created. Might we be a people that as we live out the ways of Jesus, others might see thee truly as good. And they might see, like the Roman centurions did, this man is different because of how he's called us to live like him. Pray these things in his name.